Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What is up, my friends? We got a wild show for you today. Our guest is the legendary Hugh Hendry, formerly the CIO of Eclectica Asset Management and now a luxury hotelier and host of the Asset Capitalist podcast. Today's episode, Hugh shares his thoughts on all the macro factors in the world today, touches on inflation, energy markets, the dollar, situation in China, and more. Be sure you stick around to hear why a dream about the Wizard of Oz led him to buy gold from the Bank of England. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode all the way from St. Bart's with Hugh Hendry. Hugh, welcome to the show. Oh, at last. I thought you'd forgotten about me. Longtime listener, man. And I have to say, I wish we had done this about two weeks ago because you were local right down the road in California. Where do we find you today? In my beloved St. Bart's in the Caribbean. I'm all alone. This is, I was going to say September, of course, it's now October. The island takes about six weeks of downtime. There are no clients. There's the fear of a hurricane and it's time to maintain properties, etc. So I'm camping. Hugh, I've been reading you for a long time and now more modern listening to you. You have a fun new podcast too, which is interesting because in the early episodes, it was like a diary journal looking back on some time spent in markets. And what a weird period of markets we've had the last three years. I keep saying, I'm ready for a nice quiet period. Post-pandemic, post-coronavirus, get like six months of just mellow markets, but markets have a way of not wanting to do that. So here we are, early October 2022. I figured we'd start with what the hell is going on in the world today, but in particular, inflation and rates and governments. Those three seem to be intertwined. There was some news today with OPEC seeming to take some sides. I'll pass you the mic. You can start the engine going. What does the world look like to you today? Same old, same old. I mean, you say three weird years. I mean, where have you been? 20 weird years, 22, maybe 25 weird years, because each intervention, we're 
by authorities. We're creating more and more of a volatility machine. This thing just marches from one extreme to the other. Call it a Bobby digital system. It's either alive or it's threatening to go to zero in terms of asset prices. They're either going to infinity or they're going to zero. This year, we talk about being in October 2020. Markets haven't really tested the resolve of the Federal Reserve yet. We went down 25% and we got nothing. Pretty sure in terms of response and in terms of any change to the preposterous blue dots of the Federal Reserve Committee and their interest rate expectations. And I just reckon the market knows how this game works. It'll try 35. Do you hear me? And if the Fed says no, it'll try 45, 55. Do we have an intervention? For sure one will come, but I think there is a bit of a policy trap. I think poor Jay Powell, I think is reminiscent of a, what is the quote from Anne Rand from the Atlas? A man, a man who lies to the world is the world's slave from then on. And poor Jay, in that cauldron of confusion and fear in the summer of 2020 with the virus, he took off his tie. He looks a lot better with the tie, but he took off his tie and he went on American daytime television. And he said, hey, you know, I'm from the Fed, <laughs> but I'm your friend. We got your back. And they're like, really? He's like, yeah, we're printing money. I'm like, you're printing money? Yeah, we're printing money for the American people. Now, that was a lie. You know, the, the, the Federal Reserve law of I don't know, 1935 specifically prohibits such behavior. So it was outlandish rhetoric, which I guess was deemed appropriate given the preposterously dangerous situation we found ourselves in. And I wouldn't necessarily blame him. The Rubicon that got crossed, which takes us to this contentious word you said, inflation. I always pull back on that. For sure, we have an elevation in the price of almost everything, but especially acute in non-discretionary items such as energy, which we can't skip on. And so we had... The economy globally closed down. Our feds, our treasury friends sent everyone a check. It's on us, spend money. Okay, well, the problem there was the service economy, which is two-thirds of the US economy, was closed. You can go to the cinema, you can go for a meal. And so you went on Amazon. The guy's got the factory closed. And like this wave of insane orders come in from microwaves to televisions to whatever, home improvements via Home Depot. And they're like, gee, I've got to open it again. So it's like pulling up, you know, dusting it down, plugging it back in, which is to say it took a while for supply to try and catch the tsunami of the demand. We live in a market-based system where when demand and supply are out of sync, we use price to bring them back which is to say that the government's intervention led to quite a dramatic rise in prices okay, to, to bring supply and demand back together. The question now is, are we going to see a permanent acceleration in the rate of prices? That would be inflation. That's a tricky one. I'd love to put a pin or bookmark particularly interesting LA examples in this past week. I saw on the menu a breakfast burrito for $25. This wasn't at a fancy hotel, Hugh. This was just at a normal cafe. And I said, my God, those things, it wasn't that long ago, they were five bucks. Meanwhile, I really wanted to order it because I love breakfast burritos, but I just could not come to spend 25 bucks on one. 
But that's a great example. You didn't buy it. Well, instead, I got the $20 French toast or something. I don't know. <laughs> Your consumption was five bucks less owing to you exercising discretion. And it's the discretionary spending, which I believe, or the decline in the rate of growth, if not the outright contraction in discretionary spending, which is the mechanism which rolls back these price increases. If you look at mileage in the US using your car, we are this summer at the same levels as 2020 when everyone was indoors, which is to say where you have a bit of discretion on your mileage, you're using it to save a few bucks. Again, we opened the cinemas. We are so far below 2019, the last normal year. So a lot of evidence. If you look at the share prices of businesses which rely upon discretionary spending, they're painting a really quite horrible suggestion of where we might have to tread. But as you look at these three main factors at play, interest rates, inflation, energy, how does this resolve? I don't know if resolve is the right word. I once heard you describe yourself as a time investor, which I've never heard anyone. So I'd love to hear you talk about your framework a little bit. What's the horizon look like to you? As an introduction to those perhaps hearing me for the first time, I set out to conceive of contentious narratives, contentious in the time period zero, which I believed could go on to become accepted as a belief by the many. And with regard to time, I gave myself two years for that to happen. It doesn't happen. You know what? Unlucky kid, but move on. Which kept me alive. And so I ran my fund for one, five, 15 years, which in hedge fund, cat years or whatever, dog years, is a long time. So the contentious posture that I have today is what I kind of alluded to, that inflation is a monetary phenomenon. Like you said, we've seen prints as high as 8 to 10% globally. I think even the UK may have hit something preposterous like 11 or 12. Unless the cash coming into your wallet is growing at 8 to 12%, then you're going to be forced to push back. You're not going to buy the burrito. I don't see the monetary phenomenon that would support permanently higher prices, then I believe that the accepted belief system, which today is, oh my God, this is the fourth great turning point. We told you QE was inflationary. We told you the Fed was reckless. It's all coming home to roost. I'm opposed to that for more than those reasons. So again, may I say, I do not claim to be an expert. I claim to be someone who had a career spanning decades, whose success was not a function of taking the counsel of experts. I was on CNBC Asia the other night or morning. One of the hosts was saying, yeah, you know, I, I was at the Milken Asia conference and they're telling me the Fed's got this. It's okay. The market's just a little bit elevated. It's a bit antsy. That's what markets do. No slur intended for Milken. But yeah, don't want to hang out in that crowd because that's the status quo. That's the 1% of the 1% who've done really well 
If you're a regular retail investor, you don't get trades in this environment. You need an ISDA agreement to trade <laughs> really complex things. Think of me as a Formula One car racer. I drive fast. I invest complex. The macro trade probably is the gap between, again, the twos and the tens. And you can put on nice structures. That gap has never been wider, which is almost the assurance of the market saying, you're wrong, Jay. In the next two years, you're going to be slack. The Fed slashes rates. So like I say, two years above 10-year. As of Friday, two years was 440, 10-year was four. If we get anything like the demise in the economy that I see, those two-year rates, which is to say the Fed will be back below 1%, there'll be a bit of stickiness in the 10-year, but you'll come down to two or something, and then you get the spread. So there's an opportunity, perhaps, the short end of the curve coming down in yields and maybe the whole complex. What else? Is equities close your eyes and grab your nose or does it stay far, far away? I think it's the latter. We could go through all the asset classes. If there is a seizure in markets, a seizure like March 2020 and a seizure like we saw in October 2008, there is no protection in a good narrative, there is no protection in the price point that you entered the trade. When you get liquidation, which is compelled upon you, prices have to fall to reflect that. Any steepening on those twos, tens, really, you have to remember, it's like licking honey from the razor's edge, which sounds like Death Leopard or something, but actually comes from the Tibetan book of living and dying, which is to say, so the precarious nature of that, or the remedy for stocks actually is the realization that there's a profound storm building speed coming into both asset markets and the real economy. And it's going to shake things up and take things down to force a policy change. My adage is, we're in a casino, why don't you step outside? Anyone that's not in California could take a cigarette. <laughs> But, you know, like, take a pause. Keep saying the best way to, pros know this, that just now the best way to double your money is to fold over those greenbacks and put it in your pocket. We're up. <laughs> there is no compulsion that you have to stay there every single day. That's a great analogy we just had. We did a chat with Annie Duke today, came out, and she was talking. The percentage of hands that a professional poker player folds is well over half. But if you look at the amateurs, they play. 80 or 90% of the hands. And I think there's a weird compulsion for investors to get drawn to whatever the topic of the day is. For the last couple of years, it was Tesla or the meme stocks or crypto, or I don't know what it would be today. They get drawn to whatever the story is. Hugh, you would probably like this. I would love to actually hear yours at some point, but I have a running list called what is something you believe in that the vast majority of your professional peers don't. So 75% plus. And I'm up to 18 or 19, I think, that I just add on occasion when there's something I come up with. I don't feel like I have to have an opinion on every investment. The opportunity set is tens of thousands of investments. And it's weird that people always get so myopically focused on just whatever happens to be in the zeitgeist and interest of the day. The choice isn't always buy or short. It's buy short or you don't have to play. You don't have to go in the casino. Of course, the system the casino always wins. And so there's recurring messages, hey, stay, 
hey, have another drink. Have a sandwich. Have a burger. Have a burrito. They're 25 bucks. Realize it's so kind. Yeah. Boom. Down again, down again. Again, being on financial TV, they're like, but don't you have a buy recommendation? I'm like, buy, buy. I like the setup for uranium. It's the whole profound idiocy that came out of, well, many places, but particularly Europe. Europe lost its sovereign virginity. What is sovereignty? What is sovereignty without an independent source of energy? The failure to secure sources of stable energy will take 30 years. If you commission a nuclear power plant, for instance, the lag's going to be 25, 30 years before you're hooking it into the grid. LNG is, comes from the States and there's just not the capacity. And presently, you're stealing it from Asia. So you're just elevating prices. And you're doing nothing in terms of climate control because you're just adding carbon to gas. We like gas because I think as heavens, what, at least 30% less carbon content than other forms of heating. But when you put it into LNG, you lose all of that. So 30 years, I think, is going to be the adjustment period. And one of the factors weighing on the euro as it trades below parity to the dollar. What's the external price of an economic bloc that loses its sovereign virginity? Probably less than it was. With regard to Westphalian, I think it's the doctrine of monetary sovereignty. We can touch upon that because my big tease is no one knows jack all with regard to money. Central banks know jack all about money. Hedge funds know jack all about money. Investment banks and their research knows they know jack all about money. When you read all of that assembled together in the Financial Times, it's absurd. I want to say to you, there are no more than five people on the planet who get money. Probably find one of them surfing in Manhattan Beach, if you look closely enough. I don't know. <laughs> you certainly don't find them in the Fed. The Fed, which has, what, last count, 800 PhDs. My first calendar year as a hedge fund manager was 2003, and I made 50% trading gold. And trading it audaciously, it has to be said. Yeah, a hedge fund back then didn't know what it was. <laughs> like being granted a Ferrari. And my boss said, have fun, drive fast. And I did. Yeah, I made 50%. I was buying gold. And my opponent or counterparty or uh, trading representative on the other side was the Bank of England, who had stored and accumulated gold for well over 200 years, had resisted famine, wars, poverty, you name it, never sold it. And then we had that profound 25-year devastating bear market. And at the bottom, they went, yeah. The PhDs came up with probably a very reasoned argument. I call it the conceit of a well-reasoned argument. And they went, sell it. Me, I went to Milan. I saw AC versus Inter in the soccer derby. Never seen it before. Took in a few VIP red velvet rope disco parties. That night, I dreamt of the Wizard of Oz. And I came home. My wife thought I was on shrooms. And I was like, I've just seen the future. And I bought gold. I bought, bought, bought from the Bank of England. The funny thing about gold is, historically, I feel like it often does exceedingly well in times like this, where you may have negative rates or a negative yield curve. Things are feeling like they're a little unhinged in markets. Has crypto taken a little of the air out of the room? Or do you think gold is attractive today as it was almost 20 years ago now? What's the wizard saying? Is he saying it's a good time again? I was writing about gold in response to a question on Twitter. Yeah, I write the handle Hendry underscore Hugh. And I was like, why would I buy? Again, 
who am I? I am someone with an unquenchable thirst for the joy of life. Joy is my energy. I like life. And one of the things that's kept my joy flowing is a very, very simple rule that I buy things that are going up and I sell things that are going down. And in fact, let's take that further. The role of a hedge fund or a professional speculator is actually to conceive of a warehouse full of good narrative, but not to rush out immediately and invest in that narrative, to have the composure, to have that being in the moment, to say, you know what, it's wonderful, but just not now. When is now? Now is when strangers, people you've never met, are clearly buying the thing. Bring me back the narrative number 49, you'll find it on the top shelf towards the right-hand corner. Someone's saying, well, surely you buy gold just now. Gold has been trending lower, like all other asset classes, which kind of forbids me. But in terms of its passage over the last 20 years, guess a pretty reasonable scorecard. I was buying it at 300 bucks, and we are, what, 1,800? Correlation has typically been less than that of plain vanilla equities, which who cares, but kind of helps. If your wealth is denominated in anything but dollars, it really feels good. So I'm not knocking the performance of gold. Gold itself is just a bonkers asset class. It's a stupid asset class. And then you had crypto, whose ambition was to be as stupid as that asset class. The raison d'etre of crypto is like, gold has a $9 trillion market cap. We think this is, again, the conceit of modernity. We think our modern version of gold will replace the desire to hold gold. Therefore, no one will hold gold, exaggerating somewhat for ease of comparison. If everyone switches their gold to crypto, then you take $9 trillion, you divide it by 21 million tons, and boom, we're going to get rich. Now, gold and its performance and the factors behind it, let's try and actually say sensible things. Real interest rates. That's not using the 8 to 10% inflation prints. That's backing out break-even inflation expectations and comparing it to long-end rates. There is a thesis that our system just hasn't worked. What is our system? The American economy, Western economies, last 20 years, suck. If you look at up until 2007, the 30-year compound annual growth rate in GDP, that's true prosperity, was compounding, I think, about 2.6, 2.7%. In the 15, 16 years since, ain't seen it. We just have not compounded anywhere close to that growth rate. We've been subdued. We've been on our ass. And there is an argument that we can only operate under very low real interest rates. Over the period, the variable has been zero. We've been close to zero real rates. In fact, we've been negative real rates. We're presently, given the turmoil in terms of inflation expectations, real rates are almost 2% real. I don't think our modern economy works at such elevated real rates. The last spike that we saw was in the forced selling of everything with the denouement of Lehman Brothers in October. And gold, I think, what was gold? I think it was 900 bucks and traded 550. It was, again, narrative didn't protect it. Capitulation and forced selling took it down in almost then. You spike to 4.5% real rates. 4.5% real rates, the world is over. One of the assets that is going up and seems to just be mowing down everything in its path is the US dollar. 
And I've heard you comment, so I'd love to hear any updated thoughts on a very large planet that's getting bigger, which is China. Over the past few decades, has become a much bigger part of the global economy as well as the financial markets. What are you thinking about the dollar? What are you thinking about China as we talk about the world of positive, negative rates, everything going on today? I've got to take a sip of tequila for that one. Hold on. It's all about China. It's actually got nothing to do with the Fed and nothing to do with QE. And it's complicated. And I'm nervous even to dive into it. China's about to a point Z for the third term. Okay, let me think about this. With China, that 1990 to 2010, my God, an economic miracle, the likes of which we'll never see again. Astonishing. I doff my cap to them. An amazing operation, which relied upon the goodwill of the West because we volunteered for sections of our communities to take it in the ass, forgive me, but to be displaced, to have their incomes challenged, to have communities wiped out. But there was a global game of check and balance, which is you had a billion plus people going from living in the 17th century to living in 1980. I keep saying the US might be an empire, but I can think of no more benevolent empire. And then people say, get that guy off. You know, they say, what about the war in Vietnam and blah, blah, blah. Even empires make mistakes. I think what they grow to 10% compound in the first 10 years of this century, up to 2010. And then they grew about 7.5%. They insisted that they would grow at 5% this year, down from 8% last year. Insisted. They just put stickers on these things. Another red flag. We tell you in advance it's going to be such and such. And they've had a malleable system where they could do that. But even with the malleability, it looks like it's, they're going to own 2% for next year. And again, I read another preposterous thing in the financial press today that, oh, you know, China is only going to grow at two. It's being left behind by the rest of Asia. The World Bank believes that the rest of Asia is going to grow at five next year. Can I ask you a question? Do you think Asia's growth rate is going to accelerate year over year when every emerging market currency, again, is on its ass and falling deeper and deeper? Why is it falling deeper and deeper? Because there are collateral calls that the euro dollar, this mysterious dark system that we never see, but we feel its influence, is panicking and pulling collateral, which is to say it's destroying credit. And that's the principal factor behind the rise in the dollar, because previously they were willing to accept Indonesian rupees. God forbid they would accept things from the asset managers out of China, which would be property backed. In a bull market, these guys get a little bit drunk, but in the slightest sense of danger, given their sole leverage, they call it all back. That's what's going on. So the rest of Asia ain't going to grow at 5% next year. The World Bank better ignored. I spent a career ignoring these people. Z, you can generate any GDP print you want. Sovereign nation with your own currency. The trick was to choose growth over wealth. Let me explain that. But one of the indications being stock market, an astonishing economic miracle, stock market flat. No wealth. No wealth created. What am I talking about? We know that 25 to 33% of the economy's growth rate for the last 10 years has come from the craziest ever construction property boom in residential property. Today, it stands at $90 trillion. 
the Chinese economy is 15, US economy is 21. I think US residential real estate is about 30, 35. So it's three times the mark on US residential. And US residential wasn't especially cheap. It was 10, 15 years ago. And then another huge chunk came from the capital formation through bridges, tunnels, railroads, airports, wonderful stuff, wonderful stuff. But today's cash flow cost of that will never be recouped. I would say never in terms of the never, which dominates the spreadsheet calculation of the net present value of the project. The utility benefit from having your citizens traveling in elegance and speed and in comfort will never justify the initial outlay. Why? Because when you move someone with a per capita GDP of 6,000, a lot of these out of the city provinces, you're still down at those levels. And you move it to one with 8,000. Forget it. We make mistakes in the West because I don't know what we put into our NPV calculations, but we underinvest. The US is a disgrace. UK is a disgrace. It's the one thing that unites the political parties. They don't invest in infrastructure. It is a disgrace. But it shows you how hard it is to get a positive NPV that even our politicians are wary of it. That's where all the growth rate came from. When you're not generating wealth and when you're committing to negative net present value capital expenditure projects, your stock market is flat and your debt to GDP accelerates and accelerates and accelerates. And that debt itself creates what we call fictional wealth. And the fictional wealth, of course, is captured in the 90 trillion mark of the residential property sector. The guy who's responsible for this mess is getting another five years. <laughs> doesn't fill me with joy. So the problem is the GDP calculator. China's Communist Party's GDP calculator no longer works. The last 10 years, it's generated 25% of global GDP. That's a big problem. How do they fix the mark on residential property? You know this notion that the banks are really government-owned and the government's got it? It's baloney. Again, there's five people who understand money in the world. It seems like there's probably no more than five people who understand how economics actually works. It's baloney. As we're looking at China, I think about their equity market, which is down in the most recent drawdown. It's been cut in half. And I don't think their stock market has gone anywhere in a really long time. Outside the US, if you start to look at a lot of country stock markets, and you start to count the years, and this is total return basis. We used to always talk about the Japanese lost decades. My goodness, you can start to say this about probably half the countries in the world where it's getting to the point of lost decade on equities. They're still going down, of course, but the valuations are at levels that are certainly a lot lower than they were. Is the Chinese stock market investable? Do you think it's something that at a certain valuation it's worth a punt or is it something you put in the category of just too opaque or not worth it? Well, that's easy. It's uninvestable. It's uninvestable with Z and the broken calculator. It's uninvestable. It becomes investable if they declare. They'd have to have a Volcker moment, not with regard to interest rates, but with regard to honesty and say, but you need a new guy. You'd have to say, hey, look, because some really bad news to tell you. You know all that GDP that we just told you was incredible? We made it up. We destroyed wealth getting there. It was Z's fault. We executed them last night. The good news is I'm here. I'm a capitalist. 
we're going to start doing things properly. And the first thing we're going to do is we are going to take away all of these institutional forces which screw the common man. You all think because you're earning 15x what your parents earn, you think you've done well, but truth be told, the productivity that you brought to this game, you deserve to earn more. And more than that, your currency should be trading, your currency should be higher, which is to say that your wealth vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world, you should be richer. You should be able to go and buy a BMW made in, where do they make them? I don't know. You know Hamburg, Dusseldorf, let me list random German cities. They make them in South Carolina now. They make them just about everywhere. But the ones made outside of China, the currency's precariously trading 7.15 or so versus the US dollar. With its economic dominance of international trade, it should be trading closer to four. But it's managed, and that's one of the functions which suppresses wealth. It keeps the little guy in his box. The Chinese model works on the basis, let the communists, let the jackboot guys actually be the, the principal variable of GDP growth, because we don't trust you. We don't trust the little guy, because you guys get excited. You're like the Americans. You go damn crazy. You have these booms. Then you have busts. And we don't do busts, because we're all into the longevity of us. And if we have a bust you would maybe kick us out. That's a problem in China, which becomes a problem for the rest of the world. I kind of want to pivot two ways here. As everyone worries about inflation, and in terms of creating a contentious, a real shockingly preposterous contentious statement that could be accepted, I think, within two years, would be 10-year US government yields below 1%, maybe back at COVID levels. That's preposterous. In my defense, my modest defense, 10-year Treasury yields hit 16% in summer 1982. I think Fed rates, some kind of weird Fed rates, maybe 20%. Yeah, I think it's 20. That was bonkers. That was just insane. If anyone with a pulse would have been able to track the trend rate in inflation from 1980 to 82, and it was collapsing. Why was it collapsing? Because Fed rates were at 20%, we're in a down recession. There was not an inflation concern. It was absurd that the 10-year Treasury wasn't looking through it. Could say it was because you could say the 10-year traded four points below the two-year, which would have been 20. So it's a bit like today, but the stakes are that much bigger. But the nominal levels were absurd. And that absurdity marked the beginning of the greatest bull market in financial history. I call it the greatest because of the duration of how long it's lasted, but most importantly, because the predominance of the price uptrend occurred in what's deemed to be the lowest variance, i.e. the least risky asset, and therefore the asset class which lent itself to the greatest leverage. So the Chinese currency was the strongest currency in the world for the two-year period up until maybe six months ago. And everyone's like, yeah, because China's amazing, it's a, noise, it's a revolution, it's a miracle, da, 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 da. It's because its trade surplus to GDP went back to the highs that we'd seen in that decade leading up to 2010. Its trade surplus as a percentage of global GDP went to 1%. One sounds nothing, but it's a remarkably high figure, which is to say that flow in the FX market was commercial. It was hedging just trade. And hedge funds didn't want to get involved. And you'll know now that six, nine months ago, it's been on the slide. Everyone overordered. Walmart overordered. Amazon overordered. Was it 50 factories? 
50 factories worth of like Stop sending us damn stuff. The trade thing has become less and people are starting to edge in and the Chinese currency is actually here today recording one of its weakest moments. What if it trades nine? You could say what if to anything. Why do I say that? The 25% decline in the dollar yen. Yen is just collapsing, collapsing to levels that we, again, it would have been no one's prognostication. It's a fellow member of the Mercantilist Club. There are reports saying that it's becoming as cheap, if not cheaper, to manufacture in Japan than it is in China. That takes my memory back to before the NASDAQ bubble, to the Asian tiger crisis, 97, 99. There were countries like Thailand that had to devalue because they were out of equilibrium with the rest of the world in terms of their local currency and their commitments to US dollars. At the very end of that cycle, Taiwan which was in perfect symmetry, was like a BMW engine just purring, purring, purring. They devalued 20%. Didn't see that coming. (laughs) I wrote a paper in 2015 when this was last being discussed and we were last at these tantalizing levels. And I said, you just can't imagine the Mad Max post-nuclear appalling environment that that represents. And why is that? Because Supply and demand have to balance. Production and consumption, let's say, have to balance. And they haven't. The give has been the US has run a a trade deficit as long as I've been on this planet, which is a kind of a long time. I think I look good for it, but it's a long time. When a country runs a trade deficit and that country does not have a scarcity of investment resources, which is to say that investment, domestic investment, like in the 19th century, America had investment ideas coming out of every orifice. Let's do canals, let's do railroads. In fact, let's do parallel railroads, chemical plants. Let's invent the telephone, etc. The funding commitments were so great that they were reliant upon overseas creditors. That is not the case today. So what I'm saying to you, a modern mature economy running a trade deficit where investment is not constrained by the domestic pool of savings is one where the trade deficit will lead to the demise of savings. And the brunt and the pain of the necessary correction will be invisibly, if you will, felt by the common guy, the regular guy. What's the most uncondescending term one can use? The regular Joe. Why? Because three things happen. With the international competition, your employer is on your ass and is not allowing for price increases. And if anything, he's asking you to work longer hours because he fears that they're going to have to close the plant. And you fear it, and you're like, damn, and you agree to it. Or the inevitable happens, and they do close the plant down. And so you're living off your savings, which is to say your savings are collapsing. On the other hand, in that scenario, corporate profits are high. You're a smart guy, and you know that if you look at a chart of global corporate profits to GDP, never been higher. This is the Chinese model. This is the Chinese virus, economic virus that is spreading. So in Wall Street, you've got elevation of asset prices. And if you're associated with Wall Street, you're the 1%. You've never been richer. Another factor is the $7 trillion of sovereign government holdings of treasury bills. That's there on purpose to keep their currencies below where they should trade. And that surplus, because there's not the same requisite 
availability of investment. It means that interest rates trend to zero, or in my world, my real rates have to be zero to negative to balance the damn thing. So that's where we are. If you then devalue the Chinese renminbi by 20%, take all the shitty things going on in our world and stir it 10 times and then multiply it by five times, which is to say it is grotesque. The world would not work. And there would have to be heads of state reorganization, bread and woods thing. They would invite all the loonies, El Bahrain or whatever he's called, Larry Summers, all the people that get quoted in the front pages and spout nonsense. So that's how you could get to that environment. The volatility structures are such just now that I think you actually would profit, not by spending a lot of money, but I would be in the illiquid, which is to say, out of the money, out of time. I would be like 18 months away in euro dollar options on futures, predicting that the Fed rates go to 50 basis points, if not less. The return on that could be absurd. I would be creating volatility, being long volatility by having a short position in the renminbi because I don't see what's going to stop them do that. And if we do get treasury yields coming to those levels, I would then be telling you it's the end of the great bull market in treasuries. And I try and spend the next 40 years being a bear of such treasuries. That's my world. It's not an expert world. It's Dungeon and Dragons. What I think is really useful about your framework and some things we talked about, you had a key phrase earlier, which is, what if? It's like the old comic book, Marvel, back in the 70s and 80s, maybe 90s, where it's like alternate realities. Even being a historian and looking at how weird markets have been for the past couple hundred years, you always realize that the future is going to be outside those bounds by definition. Working through some of the what ifs you talk about already puts all the investors leagues ahead of everyone else, not necessarily because they have to place the bets with the ISDAs or the euro dollar futures, but also simply from the standpoint of handling your emotional expectations when it does go totally wonky or crazy. Because most people where the, the big fractures happen with their investing portfolio is they don't anticipate that things can move in an extreme way and then they behave totally crazy. Your casino analogy would be they go on tilt and then they lose all their money. I think thinking about all these outcomes is supremely useful, which is one of the reasons I've listened to you over the years. Hugh, as we start to wind down here and let you into the Caribbean evening, is there anything else that's on your brain? I hear you might be writing a book, but anything else you're excited about, worried about, confused, enthused? Anything else on Hugh's brain today? I've got that book. No one's interested in it because I wanted to write a very snappy kind of rock and roll story to show people that I'm on the show, I'm trying to be everywhere because I'm trying to take down people like Peter Schiff. Got on Joe Rogan was just rude and boring. He just represents that white man in a gray suit who just drives me crazy. My book was to say there are other people that actually this is a preposterous industry. We're charged with seeing the future and we all run around, again, not to hit PhDs, but the conceit of modernity with all of our computing power, that somehow that we're better than those who came before us, we're not. I've always likened myself to, some would say a piss artist, but you know, to an artist, you start with a blank canvas and you try and conceive of a narrative that you can find wealthy patrons to sponsor and to promote. And so I see parallels. I think we have to try and open up finance because it's more and more encroaching upon people's lives. Why? Because asset prices, there's so much fictional wealth that is so much larger than our economies. 
And when it has a wiggle, we get slapped and we don't know what's happening. So that's why I'm out there and having face saving or whatever, but I'm not your competition. I'm just a phantom. When I was engaged, I was like an assassin. I wasn't charged with beating the S&P. I wasn't a beta one dope. I was charged with, hey, what if? Because that was my thing. I set up a hedge fund against some of the smartest, best, mentally remunerated people on the planet. And I said to myself, it's just dumb to try and outthink the smartest people on the planet. Instead, I said, why is it that smart people are not guaranteed success in speculation? And so my franchise was when people say, who would have thought that crazy stuff could happen? I'd be kind of nervous to go, well, look at my paper from X years ago. People now, of course, and all of my data is on Wikipedia, and they'll look at us, have you seen his compound annual growth rate? <laughs> I wasn't a Kagar guy. I was the making 50% in October 2008. But anyway, it sounds like special pleading. I don't care. I'm in St. Bars. I'm having fun. I don't use Bloomberg's. And for some reason, I think there's some weird island Wi-Fi over here, but I'm still hearing those voices. And there's probably a lot more I could tell you. I will save that up for the next time. Oh, good. We'll definitely have you back on, Hugh. Love talking to you. Best places people to go. Listeners, check out his podcast, The Acid Capitalist. Also on Twitter, we'll add you to the show note links. Anywhere else they go to find some information on what you're up to? They tell me that actually you should look up my name for the podcast. I always make that mistake. Hugh Hendry on the podcast. And we're beginning to take off. Silly fun, Hugh Hendry official on Instagram. I'm going to post a picture cutting down bananas from the garden, all that kind of stuff. If you need a pause from the daily grind of markets, join us in St. Bars. I love it. Hugh, it has been a whirlwind tour. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the honor. Much appreciated. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.